Let me just tell you kind of what, what went through my mind when I don't even know who came up and, and uh, prayed over me. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was a time that the uh, Israelites were going to war. And um, Moses went up on the, the hill and he said, the best thing I can do for you is pray. He said, Joshua, you, you lead the people into battle and I'm going to go up on the hill and, and I'm going to raise my hands to God and I'm going to pray. Well, as long as Moses had his hands raised to God, the Israelites were winning the war. But his arms began to tire, and as soon as he would, he would stop praising God, stop focusing on God, the enemy would advance and begin to, to defeat the Israelites. And so Aaron and Hur, Aaron was his brother, and, and Hur was another guy in the, in the tribe, they ran up and they put a rock underneath Moses so he could sit down. Moses had his hands up, and Aaron crawled under one arm, and, and uh, Hur crawled under the other arm so they could keep Moses' hands raised to God, and the Israelites won a resounding victory. Is it because Moses prayed? Was it Moses' power that, that caused the victory? No, not at all. Was it Aaron and Hur? No. Was it Joshua's great um, wit on the battlefield that, that caused the victory that day? It was God. And, and what Donald said is right. The best thing we can do is pray as a church. Um, because there is a spiritual battle going on for the hearts and souls of our nation. And, and if we don't pray, we will be defeated because our enemy is stronger than we are. We can't see him. He, he anticipates because he's been um, fighting this battle for thousands of years since there's been humans. And we get our eyes off the Lord, we get defeated. So, all right, that's another sermon for another day. We are uh, finishing up our series today on um, I marriage. Now, after the wedding, many women begin to ex- uh, exhibit some symptoms of a disease we call HES. High expectancy syndrome. When asked exactly what the problem is, the wife will say, he's messy. He's forgetful. He's inattentive to my needs. And if you ask the guy, the the spouse in the situation, he'll exhibit a strong case of the S-H-E-S, super high expectancy (laughs) syndrome. She's always late. She's not a good cook. She's never in the mood I rarely see a case of she's without also a case of the he's. just doesn't happen. Now, if this is the first time you're here with us in the series, you're kind of coming in at the end of the movie. So let me tell you what's been going on in the movie so far. We've been looking at marriage, and we've discovered that there's some very unhealthy behaviors, very unhealthy attitudes that many spouses have towards one another. And if these attitudes are left unchecked, the marriage will end badly. We can predict it because of what's going on, uh, what we've seen in the past. Now, what we said was everybody comes into marriage with a box full of these desires. You walk down the aisle with desires, and many times we leave with expectations. So you walk down the aisle and you say, man, I have this dream. I want to live in a house. I want, I want a big old house. And, and you have this dream of, you know, who's going to do what in the, uh, in the family. And this is definitely a guy thing right here. The guys are doing this. And you dream of having a family. But somewhere in the process, these things move from desires into expectations. So I dream of a big old house becomes I expect a big old house. I dream of a, uh, a family becomes I expect a big old family. I dream of a big fat paycheck means you better bring one home, sucker. And, and somewhere in the process, we move everything over into the expectations. When I lay these on the shoulders of my spouse, marriage isn't fun anymore. Because we cross over into this new dimension called debt-debtor relationship. 
where I used to think, okay, I, it would be nice if these things would happen too. I expect these things to happen, and you owe me because you made promises before God and witnesses, and I have the video, and if we need to pull it out, we'll pull it out. And we start expecting things from our spouse. And, and marriages fall into this pattern of, I'll do for you only if you do for me. And we get to this point, and, and couples do it all the time, get to this point in a, in a marriage, and they know there's a problem, but they don't even know what to do to fix it. We talked about that last week. Last week we said, you've got to ask the question, what does my spouse owe me? And you have to come to the point where you say, my spouse doesn't owe me anything because of Jesus Christ. God wants us to treat our spouses exactly like he, loved, he treats us. And so he says, you know that debt-free thing we got going on if you're my child? He says, I want you to take that debt-free thing and I want you to apply it to your spouse. And, and when we do that, then, then some good things begin to happen in our marriage. And, and we move from the big I to the little I. And I actually left it in my office. Yes, ma'am. So big I, you remember the big I in the marriage? Big I is bad. Big I is what? Little I is good. Little I is what? You need to remember that because I'm going to test you again in a minute. All right? So we're going to come back to that. The key is decide that, that, no, that my spouse doesn't owe me anything. And if you do that, we move from big I to little I. And we invite Jesus Christ into our marriage. And Jesus Christ becomes front and center. And he changes everything. And, and so when a husband and wife both agree that they're going to do this, it moves from big I, which is what? To little I, which is what? Thank you. That's why I'm testing you, Hillary. Big I is what? Little I is what? All right, Hillary's got it. We can move on now. Now, we get in here and and we say, okay, God, I'm going to become a little I marriage and I'm going to focus on you. But what do I do with this? I still got all this stuff. What do I do with it? We're going to talk about that today. But first, I'm going to tell you what you don't do with the things in the box. A couple of things that you don't do. Number one, you don't pretend that it's not there. You just say, oh, I'll just deny that I have any dreams. I won't think about all my crushed hopes and dreams that are in this box. I, I'll, I won't even think about them. I'll just I'll put them in the back of my mind. Did you know that whatever you resist persists? So if you say, I'm not going to think about it, I'm not going to think about it, I'm not going to think about it, what do you think about? All my crushed hopes and dreams that are in this box that will never come true. So you don't pretend that it's not there. Second thing is, you don't get busy with other things. Some people say, well, I'll just get busy pouring all my life into my kids, or I'll find a hobby and I'll spend all my time doing that. And that works for a while, but here's what happens. When, when a spouse says, well, you're not going to meet my needs, so I'm going to focus over here and I'm just going to have, have needs met by them, just not even worry about my needs that are in here. When a spouse does that and, and you decide I'm going to focus on something else, the message that you're sending the other spouse is you don't meet my needs, I'll not meet yours. I'm as disinterested in the marriage as you are. And even if you're interested in the marriage, being busy says you're not. And so we've got to make some decisions. Pretending is not the answer. That doesn't honor God. Pretending these things aren't here. Getting busy and distracted doesn't honor God. So what we need to do is we need to hear from God and we need to put into practice what God says that we're supposed to do. And believe it or not, the Bible tells you exactly what you're supposed to do with the stuff in this box. Now, those of you who've been here before, did, are you surprised that God tells you exactly what you're supposed to do? Every week we have a dilemma. Every week God answers it through his word, right? Have y'all figured that out yet? God's word is the most relevant book on the planet. And so we're going to look at what God's word says to do with the stuff in this box. And it comes from the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. 
If you have a smartphone, you can follow along on version. If you go on there, if you allow your, the, the version to uh, use your location services, it'll, it'll pop up there automatically. If not, you've got to look for 75801 or 802 or whatever, and uh, then it'll pop up. But if not, follow along on your listening guide. Now, Peter wrote two books in the New Testament. You know what they're called? First Peter and... All right, you get a smart audience. Man, my, my congregation is sharp. We've been working on that for 11 years. Now, there were 12 disciples. Peter was one of the big three. 12 of them overall, but there was an inner circle that got to do things and see things that the others didn't. It was Peter, James, and John. Like on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus takes only Peter, James, and John up there, and, and Jesus is transformed in front of them, and Moses and Elijah show up, and, and they were the only ones that got to see that. Um, when Jesus was praying the night before he was going to be crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes everybody out there and he says, pray. And then he takes Peter, James, and John on a little bit further. And he says, you guys stay here and pray. I'm going to go over there and pray. And he comes back to Peter, James, and John. They're sleeping. Are you sleeping? You know, all that. They got to do and see things that others didn't get to do and see. Uh, Peter was the guy who was instrumental in starting the very first church in Jerusalem after Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. He is a heavy hitter in the kingdom of God. He was married, and his books deal with how to follow God, how to follow Jesus in everyday life. Now, in chapter 5, when we pick up in verse 5, we're kind of picking up in mid-sentence where he's talking about relationships. And here's what it says. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Anybody who's younger than me is young men. So I guess we got three guys in here, four guys in here maybe. That, that Anyway, I just thought I'd point. <laughs> Young men in the same way be submissive to those who are older. All of you, how many of you? Here's the key. All of you clothe yourselves with humility. And this humility thing is really big for what we're going to talk about. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Biblical humility is different than how you, you and I tend to think about it, especially here in the United States. It's not since you're my boss, I'm going to be humble and do what you say. It's not because you're rich and I'm not that I'm going to do what you say. Or you're famous and I'm not, I'm going to do what you're going to say. Biblical humility has nothing to do with responding to someone out of their rank, wealth, or position. Biblical humility says, I'm going to choose, not because of who you are and who I'm not. Biblical humility says, I'm going to choose to put your deal above my deal. You've got a box of desires. I've got a box of desires. I'm going to put yours above mine. If there's ever a conflict about what we want, biblical humility says, I'm going to choose to put you first. Janie and I love to watch Shark Tank. How many of y'all watch Shark Tank? Four of you. Okay, Shark Tank comes on Friday night, and here's what the deal is. Let me tell you the premise. There are these four sharks. These are, these are entrepreneurs who... Through good fortune, some of it's smarts, quite honestly, some of it's just luck. They made millions of dollars. I think the, the guy with the least amount of money on the show has th- made $300 million off of one sale, his internet company. There's two of them on there that are billionaires with a B because they were at, one of them's Mark Cuban, and there's these guys. So what happens is they come out and they sit there, and they have made tons of money in their life, and they're looking for the next hot idea so that they can invest in an in entrepreneur. So an entrepreneur will come in, and they'll pitch these ideas. And, and if, uh, if the sharks like it, they'll make an offer. So they'll come in and they'll say, I need $100,000 for 50% equity in my new ice cream business. There was this one. It was really cool. It was, it was how you make ice cream uh, with liquid nitrogen right in front. You don't have to have freezers. They actually freeze it in front of you. They pour all the cream in. 
and this cool ice cream comes out. And they said, we're the only ice cream company that if your ice cream cone starts to melt, we'll come over and blast you and refreeze it. It was the coolest idea I'd ever seen. (laughs) And then they said, do you have any debt? And they said, yep. And all four sharks are like, ooh, because debt, they don't want any debt. They said, how much? And they said, well, a little over a million dollars. And they were like, what? They had these 16 franchises, you know, and all this stuff. And they said, oh, 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 because here's what happens. They start asking questions. If the idea is good, the sharks are interested. If you are good at presenting the idea, the sharks are interested, and they'll make you an offer. But if the idea is bad, or if you do a bad job of presenting, or if you've got a horrible plan, they'll go, they'll say, well, I don't like you because you're lazy. Or you've come in here and you're arrogant. People come in there and try to tell the sharks how they're going to make money. And they're like, you're not listening to us. You're arrogant. For that reason, I'm out. Or they'll say, your business plan is not sustainable. For that reason, I'm out. So they'll say, I see something, I'm out. Here's the deal. Back to this passage. If you ever say to somebody, if, if my deal opposes your deal, sucks to be you right now because my deal wins. Peter says, if you do that, God says, for that reason, I'm out. For what reason? Pride. Because the Bible says God opposes proud people. See, it's it's not just that God says, I'm going to remove my hand from proud people. It's worse than that. God says, I will resist you. I will oppose you because I do not give my grace to proud people. He works against the hopes and dreams of proud people. And I think this explains a lot of problems in a lot of marriages. You got two big eye people. Big eyes what, Hillary? Yeah. You got to be careful sitting on the front row where I can see you. You got two big eye people saying, I'm going to get my way. I'm only going to do for you when and if you do for me. And then then you you struggle and, and you worry and you pray and you say, God, where are you? And God says, I'm over here resisting the proud because that's what I do. You do what, God? I resist the proud. And he says, I let proud people make all kinds of mistakes. I let them act a fool and do things in their power and mess stuff up until they get all broken and bruised and busted and humble. And when they're humble, I say, why don't you come back over here and let's talk about your situation. He says, because I can work in humble people. But I do not work in proud people. Do you know why he doesn't work in proud people? Proud people are so full of themselves, there's no room for God. God fills empty vessels. The Bible says that that when you become a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit dwells in your life, but it says also that it's possible to quench the Spirit. One of the ways we quench the Spirit is when we're proud and we think we know better than God. God says, you're full of yourself. There's no room for me in there. So you're on your own. I'm out. For that reason, I'm out. You want to take credit for your marriage? You want to take credit for your finances, your business, all that? God says, go ahead. I'm out because I oppose. I resist proud people. But then the next part, he says, but gives grace to the humble. Man, we have been talking a lot about grace here lately. Um, my small group studying grace. I know Joe's small group studying grace. Jesse's small group studying grace. We talked about it on Easter Sunday. We talked about grace. The Sundays before that, a couple of Sundays before that, we were talking about grace. Now, here's the thing. We're not talking about salvation grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is unmerited favor. We're not talking about salvation grace. In this context, grace means the power, God's power, to do what you need to do in the moment to make it to the next moment. 
God says, I'll offer my grace to humble people, my uninterrupted presence and my unimaginable power to help you do what you need to do in the moment to get to the next moment. I give that to humble people. And so God says, when, when you humble yourselves and put someone else first, when you say, God, I'm going to get under your authority, I'm going to get under somebody else's authority, I'm going to put them first, and I'm going to say, God, your will be done, not mine, God says, I can work in people like that. For that reason, I'm in. God says, I'm all about pouring out my grace on those types of people. I'm all about coming alongside the little I people and doing for them what they need to be done, doing some stuff in their lives that they didn't even know they could do because I love to pour out grace on humble people. Big eyes what? Little eyes what? Which side do you want to be on? And let me tell you something. God does not choose your side. He is way bigger than that. If you think you can say, hey, God, I want you to take my side in this deal with my spouse. God says, you have a, a fundamental misunderstanding of who I am. I do not choose sides. I take charge. God says the key is you humble yourself, you change yourself, you get in position where I can fill you up, then we're talking. He says, I don't choose your side, you choose my side. Any area of life where you put people first, where you say, God, not my will, but your will be done, God will invade that area of your life. And he'll do for things for you that you didn't know you could do. In a big eye marriage, the person says, well, I've done everything I know to do to fix this marriage. And God's sitting over there on his throne going, not enough, is it? You can't change him. And God says, I can't get involved because you're full of you. I have all the power you need to change your marriage, but because you're so full of you, I can't do anything with you. I can't give it while you're the capital I, but if you humble yourself, God says, I'll be all over you because I love to give grace to humble people. And let me tell you this. One of the ways you can discern if something is God's will or not, here's, here's a big, huge sign about whether something is God's will or not. If it involves putting someone else before you, if it involves being humble, most of the time, I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, it's God's will for you. You want to know why this is such a clear indication of God's will? Because I've never heard of an instant where Satan, your enemy, would tempt you to be humble. He doesn't come up and say, oh, you know, you really should put your spouse first. No, he wants you to be big eye. He wants you to be full of yourself, and God wants you to be little eye. And so when, when you're trying to make a decision, if one of those ways is clearly a servant way that you put someone else first, that's probably God's will. Now, I'm not talking about when, when if someone is, is abusing you or beating you or doing something in your home that's illegal or putting you in danger. I'm not talking about that. But what I'm talking about is in most marriages that I see, we're either too selfish or too lazy to get off our butts and serve our spouses. I didn't hear an amen on that. And that doesn't count if you're talking about your spouse. Amen, he's lazy. <laughs> Sorry, I should have told you that first. I might not have gotten anything out of that. God says, I love to give grace to humble people. And then the very next verse, he repeats this thing. Verse 6, humble yourselves... Therefore, under God's mighty hand. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand means this. It means you do what you know is the right thing to do because when you humble yourself before others, 
you are humbling yourself before God. And this humble yourselves, this has a big Old Testament, this is a big Old Testament reference. If you study the Old Testament and you, and you see where God says, he says it all the time to the Israelites, humble yourselves. He's always about to do something. There's two reasons he wants them to humble themselves. So like one time, one of my favorite stories is Samuel calls all of Israel together. They're up on the mountain. They're praying, having this big old worship service like what we're here, having here. And all of a sudden, they get a report that there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of enemy coming to kill them. They're worshiping. They don't have any weapons. And what does Samuel do? He begins crying out to God, and God says, humble yourselves. So they humbled themselves before God. And the angel of the Lord went out that night and destroyed 185,000 of the enemy. They didn't have any weapons. They wake up the next day, dead people everywhere. God says, you humble yourselves before me, I do God-sized stuff. And so God says, I want you to do two things when you humble yourself for me. First thing is you're declaring your obedience. You're saying, God, it doesn't make sense for me to pray when there's hundreds of thousands of enemies around me, but because you said to pray, I'm going to pray. I don't have to understand you, God. I just have to obey you. So when you humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, you are declaring, I'm going to obey because you're God and I'm not. Second thing is, you announce your dependence. God, I'm depending on you. I can't fix my marriage. I can't control me, much less my spouse. In fact, God, if you don't show up, we're in deep trouble. And, and see, here's, here's the thing. I think that, that, that you know, when the angel of the Lord came and killed 185,000, I think David was thinking about that. I think David was thinking about other times he'd humbled his Lord because in, uh, humbled himself before the mighty hand of God because David said in Psalm 20, verse 7, this isn't up there, this just hit me this morning. It's one of my favorite verses. He said, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Some trust in tanks, some trust in, in nuclear weapons, some trust in this, some trust in this. But David said, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. He said, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The name of God is more powerful than anything on the planet. And so you declare, I'm obeying you, God, before you even tell me what to do. And you announce to everyone, I'm depending on God. May not make sense to you. I don't care what makes sense to you. I am focusing on God. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Here's the part we like in this, that he may lift you up. Oh, God, lift me up. Yes, I need to be lifted up. And then here's the part we hate. In due time. What kind of time? Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up. Yes, I like that part. In due time. See, due time for me and due time for God are very different. I hear a message on Sunday, I apply it on Monday, I figure 48 hours later on Wednesday, God ought to be showing up. God, by 5 o'clock, I put all of this stuff, I took it out of here, I put it back here, Lord, 5 o'clock on Wednesday, you've had 48 hours. There's a TV show where they solve major crimes in less time than that. When are you going to show up, God? Who's the focus on in that situation? Me. Me. I did this, God. I deserve it. I did this for you. What are you going to do for me? And God says, you don't understand. You're full of you. And I do not show my power in big eye people. He says, I show my power in little eye people. Well, well God, I, I, I took a step. Never mind that, that my track record is I do things without you in my marriage. I took this small step. God, why don't you show up? <laughs> well, what is due time? If it's not 48 hours, what is it? I don't know. 
See, that's God's job description. Part of being creator of the universe, sustainer of the universe, uh, part of being the alpha, omega, the beginning of the end, the author and perfecter of our faith, means he gets to decide because he's God and I'm not. Every situation is different, and you can't possibly know what God's doing, what, what, what he's doing behind the scenes. How many of you have run the universe lately? No one? Come on, somebody in here has stepped up and tried to be Bruce Almighty, right? No one? You can't possibly know what God's doing in other people's lives behind the scenes until God shows up. After God shows up, you can look back and you can say, wow, God was working in my spouse, he's working in my family, he's working in my friends to make us all look like him because that's God's goal. God's goal is not your comfort. God's goal is to change your character to look like Jesus Christ. So if he ever has to choose between your comfort and your character, guess what he chooses? Your character because your character goes with you to heaven. And so God has this plan for your life. People who decide to be humble and obedient sometimes for a very long time God does some God-sized stuff in their marriage and them personally. And if you were to ask these folks, they would say, I'd rather be here with God in the middle of this meantime waiting on the due time than to be anywhere else on the planet without God. I would rather suffer for a long time than be a big eye without God. You can build an incredible marriage on people like that. You can build an unbelievably sustaining empowered by God's Spirit church on people like that who will wait on God. You humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time He will lift you up. But in the meantime, that's kind of an ironic name, isn't it? In the meantime, because sometimes it's pretty mean what we go through, right? In the meantime, God says, you will have the power that you need to do what you need to do right now to make it to the next minute. Even if Big Eye over there isn't paying attention... God says, I'm paying attention, and I love to pour out my grace on humble people. And, it, and, and my grace will come in due time. And then in verse 7, Peter gets really practical about what, uh, what we're supposed to do during the due time. He says, cast. All right, I like this verse. Because I, I think, this is my translation of the original Greek here. Cast means, take your big fat dump truck of stuff. Back it up. Beep, beep, beep. The throne of God. <laughs> dump it out there. Okay, so they didn't have dump trucks back then. So back your big fat camel up with your saddlebags loaded down with all kinds of junk and chunk them at God. Is that what it means? That's what I think it means. We can talk about it later if you don't think it means that. Cast. And then this next Greek word says all. You know what that Greek word means? all. Back it up, dump it on me, and then he says, all your anxiety. Anybody here got any anxieties? God says, dump it on him. There's another translation that says desires. There's another one that says dreams, cares. Cast all your cares on the Lord. Don't pretend that you don't have desires. Don't distract yourself so that you don't look at your desires. God says, bring them all to me. I know you got a box load of stuff. God says, I want you to talk to me about it. And he says, I want you to be real about it. So you back up your, your big old camel and you say, God, when I was a little girl, I lived in a big old one of these. And can I say this? I want to live in a big old one now. Is that legal? God says, 
Is that one of your cares? Yes, Lord. Then bring it to me. Lord, you know we've tried everything we know how to do to have a child. It's not happening. Where are you, God? God says, is that a concern for you? You know it is, Lord. He says, back your dump truck up and you cast everything in this box on me. And he says, I don't want you to be politically correct. I want you to get gut level honest and you tell me about it. And, and you're going, why? <laughs> why? Why do you want me to tell you about it? Well, any of y'all remember Paul Harvey? I loved his, the rest of the story. That was a horrible thing, but you, I told you it was Paul Harvey ahead of time. He would tell you this big, long story. This is on the radio, and I used to love to listen to it. Um, in college, and, and when I'd be going out to work site and stuff like that, I'd have it on, and, and he would come on at 12.05 or something like that, and then he would always tell you this big story, and you're all into it, and he'd say, and now the rest of the story. Why does God want you to dump all this on him? Well, it's the rest of the story. It's the last part of the verse. 1 Peter 5, 7, the end. Because he cares for you. God says, is the house important to you? Yes, Lord. And he says, then it's important to me. Why? Because you are important to me. He said, there's no such thing as a silly request. There's no such thing as off limits for you to dump on me if you, if you care about it. If you're concerned about it, then I'm concerned about it. He says, when you cast, when you dump all your junk on him, he says, you're humbling yourself under me and I give my grace to humble people. He says, I'll give you the grace you need to make it to the due time until he or she comes around or if they never come around. God says, my grace is enough. My, my power, my strength, my presence is enough to get you through it. You cast all your stuff on the big eye, you are on your own. God says, I don't help you. But if you'll come to me, if you'll bring this stuff to me, there's nothing in there that's off limits. Read the Psalms. You know, I told you about David. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David was, the, was a dumper. That's the theological term for what he did in the book of Psalms. He dumped everything on God. In fact, I think he was the biggest dumper in history. And God loved him for it. God wasn't turned off when David said, Oh my God, are you going to forsake me forever? He let him get it all out and then, then, then he'd say, No. And David would always come back around and he'd go, but I'm going to trust you, God, because i got no other hope. You're the one that I'm looking to. And I'll tell you that, that those of us who have done this dumping thing, we'll tell you that what God did in my life in the meantime while I was waiting on the due time, I wouldn't trade for anything because God changed me. I was thinking about this this weekend and... Um, Back when I was in Austin, I was single. I was 24, 25, I don't remember. I think it was 24. And, and for the first time in my life, man, I was right where I knew God wanted me to be. And in the midst of this, this deal, my pastor gets fired because he, he kind of did some, some stuff and got caught in a lie. Um, my best friends in the church lied to me. I found out about that. Um, the girl that I was kind of interested in, I wasn't really dating her, found out she lied to me. I'm like, I ain't going there. And then, um, then the house, you know, I was, I was 24, first time I'd ever been in a place by myself. It was a two-bedroom, one-and-a-half bath. But, man, it was, I was living it. I was renting it, but this was cool. And then everything. Then my landlord calls up, and he goes, Sorry, buddy, my daughter wants that house. You got a week to get out. And so I remember going, What's happening, God? Because you called me here, and all of this stuff is gone. 
And I started writing in my prayer journal, and I started praying. And there were times that I, I did. I cried myself to sleep at night. I'm not a crier. Laying, when you're alone in a two-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath house, and everything's falling down on you, it's sad. And I would cry, and, 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 and I discovered in the middle of that time that God's grace is enough. And let me tell you how I know that. Because I really believe it was during that dark period that God started knocking off the rough edges to prepare me for Janie. I wasn't ready for who she was. I wasn't ready for this gift to come into my life. And God had to knock me down so that I would be prepared. And, and I'm not the same man I was before that, and that's a good thing. And I'm not the man that I'm going to be because God isn't finished with me. But praise God, I'm not who I was. You go through this dumping thing and you'll learn some stuff. Some of you some of you've never learned to dump on God. You're real good at dumping it on other people. And how well is that working for you? Not so well. So, okay, you say, all right, well, I'm to this point. I've decided, makes, makes sense. I'm going to move everything over here. I'm going to live out of desires. And, and I'm going to be a little eye person. But do I have to hide this from my spouse? Is it, is it against the rules to, to share this with my spouse? Let me give you real quickly some, some ideas for box talk. These are, some, these are some non-negotiable ideas for box talk. Three words. It's an acrostic. spells out the word car, so even the guys in the room can remember. First one is confess. Take responsibility for turning your desires into expectations. You say, little I says, I want to come under you. I want to be under God and under you. And I know that I have, um, I have put my deal before your deal. I want to put your deal before mine. And I want to confess to you that I have laid some burdens on you. In fact, I have put so many burdens on you that it's no wonder you respond to me the way that you do. Your spouse already knows it. They're just waiting on you to own up to it. And you confess those things that you know about. Second thing is you ask. You say, where do you feel pressure to live up to my expectations? Because, see, you are putting some expectations on them you don't even realize. You confess the things that you know you're doing, then you say, hey, is there anything you need to tell me? Am I making you feel uncomfortable? Am I pushing you into a box where you don't need to go? Am I missing something? And then here's something you ask. This is, this is a secret way to ask what's in their box. You say, what could I do to make our marriage fuller, richer, happier? And, and, okay, here's a warning. Do not say, honey, would you tell me everything that's in your box? And here's why. Because there's some stuff in your box that can't possibly come true. You've got some things in there that if you lay that on your spouse, they're going to feel like a failure because they can't ever do it. They're, they're going to they're feel pressure the rest of their lives. Tattooed, failure, loser, disappointment on their heart because they can't ever do it. It'd be like, you know, if Janie were to say, well, one of my things is I've always wanted to marry a guy who had hair like Bon Jovi. <laughs> I can't do it. I've tried. If I were to grow my hair, this big old cul-de-sac would be right up here. And I'd be one of those dudes, you know, hippie guys. Uh, oh, man, I don't even want to think about that. Because my hair would flap up in the wind, you know. I can't pull that off. That's not one of hers, praise God. She said she doesn't even notice that I don't have hair. She's lying, but it makes me feel better. It'd be like saying, I want to own a vineyard in Tuscany. 
See, like, I don't even want to visit a vineyard, much less own one. And I was talking to a friend of mine this week. So there's, there's somebody who used to live in Palestine that owns a vineyard in Tuscany. And they're loving life. I'm like, man, good for them. But if that's you, if you want to own a vineyard and that can't possibly happen, don't, don't put that on your spouse. I want to marry a professional athlete. Sorry, baby. You're not getting that one either. There's a lot of stuff. Here's, here's the thing. Don't tell your spouse those things that can't possibly happen because you know that some of your greatest regrets have happened in the heat of an argument when you thought you were losing. You reached over here and you pulled something up and you shook it in their face and you say, yeah, well, this hasn't happened and it never will. And you did it to inflict the most amount of pain that you could. And it worked. And maybe after a couple hours, maybe after a couple of days, depending on how dumb you are, you say, oh, I didn't mean it. I take it back. You did mean it in the, in the heat of battle, and you can't take it back. And loser is tattooed on your spouse's heart because they can't do anything about that. And you're wrong. So you leave those things in there. And then the third thing is reward. i gotta, I got to hustle. because We're going to be just a few minutes late, and you're just going to have to deal with it. Reward. Like you did when you were dating. Here's the principle. What's rewarded gets repeated. Doesn't matter where you are. This is children. This is friends. This is business. This is, this is in your marriage. Sometimes we accidentally dip into the box, and we do something for our spouses that just fill their love tanks, make them feel wonderful, and we don't even know we did it. Ladies, you're getting ready for, uh, for your day someday and you're trying to get the kids out and, and all of a sudden from nowhere your husband helps you get the kids out the door. And, and all of a sudden he sits down and looks at you and he starts saying, hey honey, how are things going? And you go, who is this man? <laughs> and he sits there uninterrupted for 10 minutes and he just talks to you and your heart starts welling up and you go, I remember why my heart beats for this guy. And you go, who are you? And he goes, well, you know, I figured out that there's this window of opportunity that like if I get out the house before 7.30, traffic, if I get out after 7.45, traffic, but there's this window from 7.30 to 7.45, if I get in that window, it's smooth sailing to traffic. So this is just a traffic deal. And you're going, really? Because to you, this was like one of the biggest things ever. You connected with him. He doesn't even know. So if he does something, even if it's accidental, reward him. Write a note. Here's what I said. Write, I can't tell you how much it meant to me when you looked at me and you talked to me without interruption for 10 minutes this morning. I love it when we talk. It helps me feel close to you. This is a good one. I'm telling you, ladies, this is a good one. It helps me feel attracted to you. He will walk with his chest out. <laughs> I love it when we talk. That was one of the highlights of my day. I love your eyes. I love your lips. And you hide that somewhere. I wish we could put a camera in, but you can't because that then defeats it all. But, but you put that and he reads it and he goes, dude, I'm a genius. And I didn't even know it. <laughs> because if you don't tell him, the next day, you're going to think, we've got 10 minutes today. He talked to me this morning. There's no reason he can't talk to me tomorrow morning. And he blows you off because he didn't know, even know he did it. He'll get some attention then, won't he? You sure weren't in a hurry yesterday. What's the problem? Ten minutes? You think that's enough? 
and you've missed an opportunity to reward his behavior. Reinforce what your spouse gets right. And here's the deal. We're, we're going to watch a video, so just, just hang on. When God looked down in the Garden of Eden, He said, it is not good that Adam is an I. God created woman so that there could be an us. The only way for us to be an us, like God intended, is to move everything out of this box, put it back in the desires box, The things we can talk about with our spouse, we do. The things we can't, we cast on God. So let's do everything we can to become us. Because that's God's intention for a marriage, is to be us. I want you to watch this video. It's all about grace. And then Donald's going to come up and sing. And we're just going to have a a kind of a a time at the end where if you need some grace, if you need some prayer, we're going to have that that time of prayer. So watch this, and then we'll go into a a song. Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, His crazy love. And the truth is, many times we struggle understanding it. If you find yourself struggling to understand God's grace, don't beat yourself up. Even the disciples struggled with understanding grace. Jesus said you, you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. Okay, I was in the boat and I wasn't catching any fish, okay? But I heard this voice and the voice said, cast your net to the other side. And so I'm thinking, I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing, but I'm not catching any fish, you know? And so I throw that net over there and then a gaggle of fish pop into that net and I'm going, this is a total miracle. Who could have done that? I need to know who told me to throw the net to the other side. And boom, I look up and I mean, there is you. You're looking at me on the seashore going, it is I, the Lord, and you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. This is awesome. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on. Peter, yeah. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you. You're alive. This is so great. Good, then feed my sheep. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on, man. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? I love you, yes. And I'm so sorry about that rooster cluck, and I had no idea what that meant, but I do not. I'm better for it, all right? Okay. Then feed my sheep. Andrew, I'm smiling, but I'm serious. Come on, get out of the boat. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? Jesus, mere words cannot describe the passion that I have for you. I love you. You know everything. I love you. Good. Good. Then feed my sheep. I didn't even know you had livestock. That is so like you, though. There's something new about you all the time. That's what I love about you. Peter, Yeah. do you remember uh, the morning the ladies went to the tomb? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all in the upper room trying to figure out what to do next, you know, because we thought you were dead. You know, you were dead, you know, and we're trying to figure all that out, you know. And Mary comes running up, and Mary's like saying, beehive, beehive, beehive. And I'm thinking, I'm allergic to bees. Like, keep them out. You know what I'm saying? But as she kept getting closer, I heard her correctly. She was saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And we're going, who's alive, who's alive? And she said, she was at the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And she said that the, there was an angel there. And the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. And so me and John, we hightailed it down there. And if John says he beat me, he's totally lying, all right? I beat him, FYI, all right, you know? And we get down there, and I'm looking in that tomb, and it is. It is empty. There's nothing in there, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And John is right there. John is so good with words. He should write a book. He is so good with words. And John said, don't you get it, Peter? This is everything Jesus said he was going to do, and you did it, and it's done. Let's go. This is so great. Wait, yeah. the angel said what? Uh, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. You've risen. Let's go. This he is said go- what? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You said my name. 
Why did you say my name? Peter, that's grace. No, no, I don't, I don't deserve that because that night people kept coming up to me asking me if I belonged to you, if I was with you, and I kept denying you left and right, all right? No, it'll take me my whole life to make up for what I did. It was unforgivable for no, what I did. No, What I did on the cross was meant to take what is unforgivable and make it forgivable. That's my grace. It's not about you. It's always about me. That's grace, Peter. So just for a minute or so, we want to give you an opportunity. You may want to just kneel where you are. But some of you, your life is overwhelming right now. And you need the grace of God. And if you want to come, we're just going to open this up. We don't do this very often. But you come and you can kneel here. Donald's going to sing over us. We're going to have a time of prayer. And we'll be dismissed. So let's just, let's just do that. Bow your heads where you are. If you want to come up, come on up.
pray that, that we could become a church that dispenses grace. That when, when folks think about new life, they think about the people in new life. They know that we're not, we're not perfect, and we admit that. And we welcome folks who hurt and who need grace. God, I, I know every one of us out here needs some type of, of grace to be applied to our lives. Because if you don't show up, Lord, some of us are going under. But we're going to depend on your word, which says your grace is enough. Your grace is sufficient. And we're going to ask that you apply your power, your uninterrupted power, your uninterrupted presence in our lives so that we might make it through another day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.